and welcome to this week's Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. For decades, kidnapping has been and continues to be a global problem. Sometimes it's politically motivated, sometimes for other ideological or extremist reasons, and very often it's for financial gain and involves criminals. But the fact is, every year thousands of people are taken hostage worldwide. The duration of criminal kidnaps is usually much shorter than those perpetrated by extremist groups. In more than 75% of cases, the victim is held for a week or less, but the effects can still be long-lasting and devastating. As a fresh-faced Sky News reporter, I remember covering the stories of journalist John McCarthy and Special Envoy Terry Waite, who were taken hostage in Lebanon more than 30 years ago. John was 29 and working for Worldwide Television News when he was kidnapped by Islamic Jihad fundamentalists on the streets of Beirut. For five years, he endured the deprivation, both physical and psychological, of captivity, the filth and squalor of the cells he was held in, the agony of isolation, hours of repeated self-examination, and the pain of not knowing if his loved ones even knew he was alive. I recall vividly reporting on John's eventual release in Damascus, and his emotional return to RAF Lynham in Britain in 1991, watched by millions. Three decades on, John has become the first patron of Hostage International, a small but much-needed charity co-founded by Terry Waite, who himself was held for 1,763 days, much of it alone. The charity gives practical support to those affected by kidnap or illegal detention of a loved one and to detainees after their release. And I'm delighted to say that John's with me now. John, you're smiling away. All these years on, I think you've got a portrait in the attic, I think. You don't really look any different to when you did all those years ago. Well, Helen, you're, you're far too kind, but thank you. I'll take, I'll, I'll take that. And it's it's lovely to be with someone, to be able to be on your podcast and to think that you were there back in the day. And I knew you know, a number of my journalist friends, our mutual friends who were working on my story, so to speak, and on my case, and we're, we're, we're close. And it's, it is amazing to think it's so long ago. It's just very fortunate to have got through all that time, of course, and now to be involved with literally my old cellmate, Terry Waite, and hopefully helping other people coming out of the situation, which, as you say, we came home to extraordinary fanfare, particularly in the UK, and had a lot of support, whereas many other people come out of that situation, whether it was a long time like ours, five years, or just a week or two, can be just as devastating in terms of the after effect, the hangover, if you like. I suppose, in a way, we chatted about this when you arrived today. To me, you felt one of us. You're a fellow journalist, so that meant I was very interested in your story. And also, I sat next to Nick Toxvik, who you were at university with. Nick was on the foreign desk. I was very naive at that time on the home desk. And also a great friend of yours, Chris Pearson. So to watch them campaign for you behind the scenes and to see the pain and agony that your captivity was having on them was more than just seeing it on the news. So I do really feel connected to your story. I think that's interesting because I think for many families who, for, for instance, who Hostage International will be looking after or helping, they won't have that sort of intimate media connection that my family did. My fiancé, Jill Morrell, was obviously another journalist, a close friend with Nick Toxvig and Chris Pearson, who you mentioned. So they were involved with the media. So in terms of dealing with the media, they knew how perhaps to approach them and who to talk to. And in terms of following up the story, whether it was in Lebanon or Middle East in general, they had all that advantage, which most people wouldn't have. My boss was very close with my dad and mother, and he could keep them informed of what was going on. So that backup was really there already, in a sense. For most people, and this is where Hostage International really wants to try and help, coping with the shock of disappearance and then how best to deal with it moving forward for the families at home, because often there won't be any information initially about what's happened to the person who's been abducted or, or locked up. That is 
a key area that we know is so important because not knowing on either side, as you mentioned, I didn't know what was going on with my family and friends and I had no idea if they knew anything about me. And of course they didn't for years what had happened to us, whether we were alive or not. That's a really difficult thing to have somebody holding your hand through all of that is a wonderful thing. And realizing that my lot were lucky and I was lucky in a way too, to have all that background support. If we can give that to, to other people, tragically so many of them, you know, in that circumstance, that's great. And of course, Terry came out to Lebanon to try to negotiate your release and the release of other people who were being held. So I'm imagining when Terry approached you and asked you to be patron, that would be quite tricky to say no, wouldn't it, John? <laughs> yeah, it was, and he's a big lad too. He's a big, you know, lad, he's a big lad. He was, he wasn't menacing in it. No, um, <laughs> in the funny sort of way, because Terry set up the original hostage charity back in 2004. So we will be celebrating the 20th anniversary next year, which is amazing and brilliant. All credit to him. He's, he's a remarkably committed person on, on many levels, particularly charitable levels, etc., with the work he does. And I hadn't really been involved until the last couple of years. We gave each other space to do whatever we were focused on. And then I think he sensed with me that so much time has gone since those times. It was fine. We've always remained close and kept in touch with each other about well, family stuff, private stuff, if you like, but also what, what we're doing work-wise as writers and journalists or, or me as a journalist and the charitable work we've been involved in and such like. And I think it just became suddenly, well, this would be mad not for me to be involved, even if it was just turning up perhaps at fundraising or awareness raising events and in a way share our story for the benefit of those people who might come to, to such an event. And because you know, it was a remarkable thing that we shared. So yes, it, there was no pressure at all. And it just seems like, why wouldn't I do that? What an honor to be with dear friend and someone who I admired because as you mentioned, I think in your intro, Terry was banged up for four years on his own before he joined me and a couple of American hostages in our last year of captivity. And I don't know how he stayed sane. I simply don't know. I always ask him. It's, I get bored asking. And he never, and he just did. And he's a, a, a remarkable character. So it's great to be involved with him now and using our experience, obviously, to help the organization, but also to help its profile. Well, of course, you see it from both sides because you're in an unusual, thankfully, position of going through what you went out there. But also you now see it from friends and family side, because when you came home, I think obviously you realised through your then girlfriend, Jill Morell, all, all the efforts that had been going on to keep your story alive, to keep you in the news, to help you be released. So for Hostage International, it just makes such a lot of sense. Sometimes I think you can be almost too close to the story and perhaps Terry didn't think about it earlier because you're great friends. But yes, it makes so much sense. Tell us a bit, John, about what Hostage International does. Well, basically, it's there to look after or help the family and friends of people who are either abducted, kidnapped for ransom, wherever it might be in the world, or abducted perhaps by uh, militant terrorist organizations, or more recently put into arbitrary detention. So held by a state, what we would deem as illegal reasons, but they're held there as a kind of pawn, perhaps that might be the point. So the idea is that whether they're kidnapped for ransom, if you like, or taken and uh, put in prison by a state for political reasons, how can they be supported? The people who are actually locked up, the kidnapped victim, that's not likely to happen until they're out, obviously, because there's no communication, usually directly with the hostages, but it could be with someone held in prison, and especially for their families at home, trying to understand what can we do? What should we do? 
And so Hostage International would advise, you know, quite likely journalists might come knocking at your door or you might want to talk to the media about the situation. How best to go about that? It can be a minefield. I mean, obviously, with all due respect to, to you and me, we're journalists, so we're very decent people. But you can get yourself into a worrisome situation if you speak too openly about stuff. And it's something that one would urge caution on, I think, generally speaking, certainly in the initial stages until you know what's going on. So there's that. And then there's also just saying, what can we do to keep the family going? Because it's such a shock when you don't know what's going on. I mean, as you said, I didn't really know about that. I can only imagine it until I came home and spoke to my dad, my brother, Jill, and Chris Pearson, and Nick, our, our journalist friends, about what they were going through, trying to carry on an ordinary life. And yet, of course, they were all hostages too. So helping them manage that and work out who they can talk to, how they deal with government, how they deal with perhaps insurance companies, whatever it is that they need to do, all that sort of stuff we can generally advise them on. And then after the event, hopefully when the loved one is released from whatever the situation is, for them to come home. And now Terry and I were in a, in a kind of extraordinarily fortunate and very unusual league because of the years of campaigning, Terry's high profile campaign that Jill and Chris Pearson had led for the British hostages. We were really, really famous. So we had this strange thing of coming home to RAF Lynham. You were covering the story there, you know, and it was a massive thing and a lot of attention, which was to be honest, quite frightening, because I just thought, what on earth is this all about? What am I meant to do? But luckily, because Jill and Chris Pearson and all these other things, and indeed my dad and boss, they were well used to all of that by now. And so they could sort of guide me through it, because I was just thinking, well, what's going on? What, what, what are all these people here? It was tricky. So I needed help. And I think it's great that Hostage International can offer other people who won't have the same extraordinary background and backstory and support that I had, and Terry had too with his work, I think, to get through that initial shock of coming home and suddenly being back in the real world and often in the limelight. It's good to have the support. Well, hopefully we can offer people on that and how to, to manage it. And if they want to tell their story, find a comfortable way of doing that, whether it's the hostage or the prisoner or indeed their families who want to try and do that and how to manage those things and how the relationships between people might have shifted and changed within a family it can happen or between a group of friends somebody is away how do we handle this how do we handle this somebody might say we've got to campaign we've got to do this we've got to do this and others might be saying no let, let's go slowly so it's a difficult situation obviously and everybody's hypertense and hyper anxious so to be able to help with those sort of negotiations and intergroups and providing say i don't know if a family comes to hostages international someone has been abducted in whichever country it may be then we can say well look okay the mother might have somebody we can provide to talk to to help them deal with the emotional strain whatever it is and their thoughts about what's going on and likewise perhaps for, for you know for, for the partner who's left at home or the children even individuals they can talk to to give them a sense of outside that extraordinarily intense perhaps family or even business environment there's people who can take the edge off for you so that's that and then when coming home there's also the practical legal advice medical advice physical medical advice depending on what the circumstances you come on and obviously a lot of people certainly wait and i benefited from psychiatric counseling help us get over trauma ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder it's almost inevitable you're going to get it have something of it and that might apply just as much to those who've been at home theoretically not hostages or not in prison but in reality emotionally very much so so that to provide that sort of support ongoing and to keep it going for as long as people might need is clearly what we want to do 
I think when Cherry and I came home, fairly soon we thought we were back to normal. And I think, bizarrely, apart from all the being famous and all the publicity we realized when we got out, having been held for so long, strangely, Derry in, in, in solitary and then sharing the last couple of years with, with me and a couple of other guys, it was almost when I got used and managed and found oneself in that environment and dealt with it. And we were fortunate that, that we did that. And that was particularly because of Terry and the Americans and, and Brian Keenan and Irishman I was, I was banged up with. We had an extraordinarily strong community, a little group of people who were all chained up together that we could survive that. Whereas some people who were held in the same circumstances, but only for a relatively a small time of a year, came out and they were still in the initial trauma of kidnap, which is just your head's gone, you don't know who you are, you've lost all sense of your purpose, you haven't rebuilt yourself within the experience, if you like, within that captivity. And I think a lot of those people suffered a great deal coming out and they went home and they might have started writing about it, but they've never really got over that. So a lot of people who are relatively short-term trauma, somebody's all over now, what's the problem? You know, you, somebody either paid you a ransom or the government did a deal, whatever it might be. It's not that, it's the way your life has been totally turned upside down for no reason that you've been involved with. So that being cared for and looked after after the event is crucial. Terry and I probably felt we were all right, but I realized over the years that there were times when I thought, oh, I feel a bit wobbly. I think there's a case that Hostage International had recently, which was from 30 years ago. Somebody who had been kidnapped or whatever, and long before Hostage International was, actually might have been while Terry was still locked up himself, I don't know. But something had triggered a memory or an emotional response for whatever reason, back to that experience and came to a hostage international and say, look, it's happened a long time ago and I've been home for years and years, but I'm really feeling distressed about this. Can you help? So even in that environment, it's brilliant that we've got the resources that we have of legal advisors, perhaps, but certainly psychiatric counsellors who can say, yeah, talk to this person, hopefully get you back on the straight and narrow again. I remember those shots of you blinking in the daylight in Damascus and then coming back to RAF Lynham to what felt like some kind of hero's welcome. I think the whole nation was behind you. We were all so thrilled that there you were back on British soil, having followed your story so closely. But how was that for you, leaving as a, a young 29-year-old, presumably unknown reporter, going about your business for WTN and coming back, suddenly realising that everybody on the street knew who you were? Yeah. It was an extraordinary time. I got out to Lebanon in 86 for a month to cover, because WTN was a TV news agency, so we had offices all over the world, and obviously Beirut was a very important the Civil War that had been running for 10 years, actually, at that point when I went out there. So I was to run our camera crews, basically. I wasn't a reporter or such, but as a producer, really, for a month while the regular guy was on holiday. And then people started being disappeared, including Brian Keenan, the Irishman, who I ended up spending four years with. And speaking to my boss, he said, well, get out of town, John. Maybe you can go back, but nobody's claiming these you know, new kidnappings. And that's what I was trying to do. And then didn't get to the airport and got kidnapped, and then that was me for the next five years. But most of that time, I was obviously completely out of touch with the world. We weren't communicating with, with family and friends in any way, but more importantly, we was in limbo land, which was very weird because we didn't have any access to news. So we didn't have a radio for most of that time until the last year, really. So you're literally in the dark because we were obviously underground and without, well, never with any natural daylight. So it was very strange to then emerge, although luckily in the last year, when I was with Terry, we had a radio, so we caught up a lot with the world affairs that had shifted massively, particularly while we were being held hostage. But then to come out, although I'd heard about the campaign, 
and that the UK was well aware of it. It had been on the news and, and the Yellow Ribbon campaign that, that, that the Friends of John McCarthy had. So I was aware of, I was sort of aware of that, but that clearly doesn't really translate into how big my story was, my release was. I remember getting back to Lyon that evening and bizarrely done a press conference in Damascus before we left and met my dad and brother there. And they were so totally normal. It was wonderful. So I mean, we said, well, how's your day been? And I said, well, I woke up in Beirut. I wasn't in a cell. I wasn't chained up. I was in somebody's apartment. I was blindfolded, but I got away from the chains and stuff, you know, a couple of days before. So I knew I was hopefully on the way home. And I was put in the boot of a car, taken out of the boot of the car, put in the back of the car, and then handed over to the Syrians, obviously by the kidnap gang, handed over to Syrian intelligence, and then they brought me to Damascus. I said, it's been a kind of a weird day of changing from being an absolute chained up, blindfolded person to being someone who I ended up getting to Damascus in this open top Mercedes sports car. It was just so, <laughs> so oh goodness, weird. that's so bizarre. And then my dad and brother, and we just met. Because my mum had died while oh, I was away. Oh, I know away. your mum had died. Your mum was poorly before you left, wasn't yeah, she? Yes, she'd just been re-diagnosed with a variation on breast cancer she'd had as a much younger woman. So I was always concerned about that, but didn't actually hear about it because we didn't have any news or radio. Didn't hear about it until a year after she died. That so was, you heard that on the radio when you were still being Well, yeah, I was, well, yeah, because I was, let's see, Brown Keenan was released in August 1990, I think. At that point, I was reunited with two Americans, Terry Anderson and Tom Sutherland, who were the longest held of all the Westerners in Beirut. And it turned out that whilst Brown and I hadn't had a radio, they'd had one for a year or so for some reason. And I remember asking them, have you heard any news of my family? And for a while, one of them, Tom, just couldn't speak, just looked at me blankly. I thought, oh, God. And then Anderson was really sweet. So he sort of threw himself across the cell to the end of as far as his chain would let him from his side of the room. I sort of reached out and said, well, John, I can't remember exactly when, but about a year ago, we heard that your mum had died, you know. I think perhaps emotionally it would have been impossible to try and sort of take that on board and, and grieve in those circumstances, obviously desperate enough in a way. And also I sort of comforted myself a bit because I thought, how can I say goodbye to my mum when it's felt like she's been absolutely with me all these years? You keep going in those circumstances, obviously hoping for the future, hoping that in, in that case that my mum would have been okay or the treatment have, would have kept her alive. But also you remember everything from being, a, it's extraordinary how, you know, in all those years with nothing to do, mostly, your brain goes back into into dreams, particularly throw up things, and you suddenly remember stuff from quite early childhood. And my mum was a, a very funny person, so I remember lots of things. And those things would keep spinning, and they were kind of your background resource to keep you going, as well as weight or keen or whatever it might be in the foreground, providing you with company and support. And I thought, well, actually, she's been doing that for a year in spirit, if you like, even though she's actually been dead. I didn't know, but she's just been as vital a support mechanism for me. So I thought, I'm going to cling on to that and perhaps I'll do my grieving for my mum when I've got more space and time and hopefully we'll be safe home again. And that's how it worked. But anyway, sorry, back in, on day of release, met up with my dad and brother in Damascus and I've been able to let them know through the ambassador that I knew about my mum, so they hadn't got to break that news to me, which must have been something they were really concerned about. They had no idea how it was going to be, obviously, coming out. And I remember we just met in the ambassador's residence garden in, in Damascus, and very English, you know, big hug, one massive sob, and then how's your day been? And so I was relating again from Chains you know, in the boot of a car to a Mercedes open top sports car to get to Damascus. And they were, well, we started off wanting to get out to Bryce Norton in a taxi cab or something. And then we got a military plane to Cyprus. And then we, and then we flew on. It was a huge relief to find that they were so completely normal. Just as I remembered them, I'd had this weird thing that over the years we'd have drifted apart. We wouldn't look the same, but it was just there. And then getting back to Lynham and seeing Jill and Chris Pearson, I saw Nick the next day, I think, Nick Toxley. 
It was wonderful. And again, that sort of, how's your day been? I said, well, do you know what? I had to do a press conference in Damascus. So what you And they said, oh, yeah, we did a couple this morning. And the way Chris and Jill said it was so casual. And I remember looking at you and thinking, you're used to this, aren't you? And she yeah. said, They've yeah, been used to being yeah, at Downing yeah, Street yeah, and, yeah. and all over the place. Exactly, I, I exactly. Think. Oh, wow. So all that was, for me, very fortunate to come home because it was so strange on one level. But to have people who absolutely knew what was going on, and that was not, not just Jill and Chris who were sort of, professional journalists as, as, as well as obviously privately leading the campaign, if you like, but my dad as well. It was very strange, but understandable. I was very fortunate in that regard. And then gradually moving on, and Jill and I writing a book together about her campaign, My Captivity, was also a very important part of moving on. But it only worked because we had the support of our colleagues, our families, and indeed literary agents and all that sort of thing, to make sure it was managed as we wanted to do it. So we weren't forced to go and tell the story. And understandably, there was a huge lot of press interest because it was a big story, as you remember. Tabloid papers perhaps wanted to get the, oh, 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 you know, this beautiful young woman and this, this young man comes out of captivity and, and all this hero stuff, which we looked at each other and thought, what? I've just sat on my bum for five years. I've <laughs> not really been doing anything much of a heroic nature. So the fact that we could manage that and felt confident with the people helping us, whilst it was still quite a big churning operation to tell our story to each other in the book, if you like, and then obviously to the wider world. Another thing that we feel at Hostage International, based on experience and information we've gained from others, but particularly from Terry and myself, that's got to be managed to suit the person who's been abducted or held in whatever way, and the family too, so everybody can feel comfortable that nobody's being let down or not exactly abused, but you know, taken advantage of or misrepresented. One thing that struck me, John, is that when you were being held, it wasn't like anybody put a time limit on it and you thought, oh, I'll be here for five years. You had no idea if at any stage of that when it would end. We now know you were held for more than five years. But as each year went by, how did you keep yourself mentally strong? How did you develop resilience to be able to cope with the conditions that you're being held in, which I'll also ask you about as well, and to not lose hope? that one day you would see daylight again and you would be reunited with your family? It's a good question. I'm not sure. If I'd been told this is going to be five and a quarter years in these sorts of conditions, which are always pretty grim, I don't know if I'd have been able to cope with that, whether I could have kept the positivity going, uh, because at times it was very difficult. But then on the other hand, not knowing, for me particularly, and it drove the others mad, particularly Brian Keane mad, that I'd be saying, I think we're going to be going home in three months' time. And three-month blocks get locked into to five and a quarter years. So I was often, often, you know, making these mad claims that I'd worked out in my head through some mad plan as to why this would be the release date or whatever it was. And Brian got very agitated and very rude about it on occasion. But from my point of view, I had to have a target. So even if I knew, obviously, in the back of my mind that there was, this is just an insane, arbitrary decision of my brain to say three months time that was something that I felt I could look to and manage whereas Brian and I remember Terry Anderson one of the Americans think I'll give it to Christmas that was in April or May I wasn't really able to cope like that I couldn't do that I thought no I mean I knew I would probably be there for Christmas and possibly longer but I always had to set myself a shorter target and work through that and the other thing was planning making plans now initially when I was first kidnapped I was in solitary confinement for two or three months I think which I found absolutely desperate and I happened to be in the same sort of underground prison area that Brian was as it turned out once we left that we were fortunately for me and I hope for him you know together for the next four years but I remember then I was particularly focused on thinking right well they're bound to let me go in shortly it must have been a mistake I'm a very unknown journalist 
journalist, I'm junior, I don't work for a massive news organization like the BBC or whatever, and I'm not a businessman or a diplomat, so uh, it must have been a mistake kidding myself. But so I was focused then on John and I were planning to get married and where we were going to go on holiday and we were hoping to get a flat together in London to live in and all that sort of stuff. So I was living that kind of planning life thinking, okay, whatever. And then gradually it gets harder and harder to keep that going. And I think it was really so lucky that after those first two or three months, I was with Brian because we kept each other going. And the way we did that, we found each other fascinating. I mean, if we'd met outside the confines of an Islamic jihad cell, we might not have got on at all or even wanted to say, because, you know, there I was. Is posh, middle-class, middle England, who'd been to private school. And Brian is from East Belfast, very working-class background. He was there in Beirut to teach literature at one of the universities, and he's an extremely clever, bright man. But his background was very different. And I think initially we just thought, I don't know who this bloke is at all. In fact, I couldn't really understand his Belfast accent initially. But that thing, and him being very working-class, and me, for example, I think, despite those backgrounds, I think we realised that the differences between us were a huge resource because we had all these stories to sell. So it wasn't, oh, well, I went to this school, or I went to that, this school. You know, similar background, a totally different world and experience of life. So that was great. And also for all those differences of experience and background, shared a great deal of, of similarity in our outlook on the world and indeed our political outlook largely. So that was great. And then we also planned things to do together. So I shifted, should be like, my allegiances from what I was going to do with Jill when I got out, because I didn't know, this is say two years on, three years on, I didn't know if Jill would, would still be waiting for me, all that sort of stuff. And I had to slightly protect myself from that because we had no idea what, what could happen. Did they know we were alive? You know, I don't know. We were planning, you know, trips that mad things that we would do, Brian and I would do when we got out, as well as forever talking about our pasts, talking about future, talking about ideas. Uh, and that sort of, how we kept going. But there were times when neither of us, and this was the same with when I was with Waite and the, the two Americans, your energy level crashed and you couldn't keep it going. And then you just, one watched out for the other guy in the room, or if there were a few of you, we still looked out for the one who was not right. They supported me in this way and I hope I did for them. And you'd leave each other with a couple of days. He just needs to be in his own space. Literally blindfold over your head and you're just down and out. You can't, you, it's all gone. It's like the, the computer's crashed, you know. And you have to wait before rebooting it. And then that rebooting can be very gentle. It's like, hi, Helen, what, how are you? Eventually you'll respond and hopefully come back out of it. And I think one of the, the key things that we had together also was, and this was really, really fortunate and really vital, was the fact all my fellow hostages, but especially with Keenan, who I spent you know, four years with 24-7, just the two of us mostly, was we had shared a sense of humour. And so we could take the mick out of each other. And, you know, this idea of the Belfast boyo and the middle-class public school idiot, uh, me, uh, you know, we could, you know, it was, we were basically a joke. You know, we were a standard, you know, an Englishman and an Irishman walking to a prison cell together. Bingo, that's us, you know. And so we teased each other and were very rude. And that, you know, inevitably, we were in tiny rooms. You know, we were, I don't know, this table's what, sort of four by, by six foot or six, seven foot or eight. So this would have been a cell, you know, two mattresses side by side, and that was it with no daylight and whatever. Inevitably, we literally got on each other's nerves, almost you know, physically, we couldn't get away from each other. So to be able to dispel that sometimes just by being exceptionally rude to each other and then creating deliberate nonsense and vulgar language to insult each other, 
so that the point where you got where instead of feeling really annoyed and hemmed in by this character, you're actually sharing gales of laughter and, and all the energy that comes from, from, from the warmth of humour. Thank goodness you had conversation, because, I mean, Terry spent a long time, I think he spent about three years, didn't he, totally alone, and I would imagine yeah, if you were actually, alone in yeah, your head. Almost four years, I think it was, yeah, Terry. that length yeah, of I mean, time. What were conditions like? I mean, you described it a little bit there, the size of the cell, the mattress. Were you always chained on and often blindfolded? And what were your kidnappers like? How did they treat you? We were always in fairly small rooms, usually, after the initial prison, which I was in a tiny cell, literally six foot by four foot, the ceiling is just above my head and I'm only five eight, uh, so it was a very small space to be in, windowless underground cell. So I wasn't chained up there. Then when I was moved and met Brian, we were in another underground purpose-built sort of terrorist prison for a few months. Then we were moved. And after we were moved again, this was, I think, out of Beirut initially, then we were chained up. And from that point on, we were always chained up. They sort of put a bolt in the wall of the room or the underground room that we were in. And we were chained with maybe three or four feet of chain. And that was attached around our ankles. We had blindfolds at the ready all the time because basically anytime the cell door was open or the room door was open, you'd have to have the blindfold on. They were very neurotic about not us not seeing them. That was horrible. So we never saw these guys. It's it's weird to think that you had such an intimate relationship with someone in many respects, and yet you don't see them. On one occasion, Brian and I were in this thing where there wasn't even a door. We were just in a kind of little pantry off a kitchen, and the door sliding door fell off, and they just couldn't be bothered to fix it. So we had to have the blindfolds on 24 hours a day. I remember that really freaked me out because actually it was a very very bad place there. Brian got very badly beaten there as well. And anyway, it was just the weight. If you can imagine the weight on your eyeballs, eventually it's just this piece, light piece of cloth. But anyway. uh, So there was that. And I think it's interesting that most of the guards, and there were probably 40 over the five and a bit years, I think in 12 or 13 locations, 12 or so moves for me while I was banged up. And some of those 40, some of them just appeared at one location for a couple of months and then we were moved and never heard, I was going to say never saw, but never heard them again, if you like. And others will be regular. For most of them, didn't abuse us. I mean, obviously the situation was abusive. They were still chaining us up. But there was no malice within that as far as one could judge. They didn't knock you about or abuse you verbally even, you know, and would listen if you were asking for more food or for information or for books. Well, apart from terror, we all smoked at some point, you know, for more cigarettes or whatever it might be. And most of them, you felt at least nothing bad is going to happen here. But there were one or two who you heard their voice and you thought, oh, God, there could be some say malarkey, as Brown might call it, you know, and where things could get abusive. So you were very wary of those people, but also conscious that with the others, hopefully, despite the endless tedium of it and, the, and what they were doing to you, there wouldn't be anything particularly unpleasant beyond just the continuing experience. I think I read in an article you wrote, possibly for The Guardian, where you said you tried to think of your kidnappers as human beings. And I think that's a very generous thought to have and probably helped you cope. I think it did because you know, they weren't monsters. Brian and I talked about it a lot. And he had he had sort of, if you like, some experience just from being a you know a teenager during the, the troubles in Northern Ireland. And knew how communities worked and how sectarian conflict affected people and affected families, societies, and individuals. So that was kind of quite interesting to reflect his reflections on that within us being caught up in a civil war a thousand miles away. But we did reflect that. The guards holding us, the day-to-day guards, not the people who are running the Islamic Jihad or Hezbollah above it, the day-to-day guards were probably, you know, when we were first taken, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And the fact that most of them 
didn't do anything beyond, you know, follow their orders, chain us up, provide us with food, occasionally, you know, the extra cigarette or whatever, or a reassuring word, or just somebody sharing something, you know, like, I'm sorry that we're doing this, you know, we believe it's right. Just simple like that. And I think we thought, this is quite interesting, because these guys, as I said, 18, 19, 20, when we started, 10 years of their life to that point had been dominated by the civil war in their country, which was right out and out, full on military violence, blowing Beirut apart, all the cities of Lebanon apart, all the communities apart. So to live through the chaos and carnage of that and the terror of that from, say, when they were about maybe 10 years old themselves. So all those formative years from being a 10-year-old up to being a 20-year-old are within utter conflict, not to have turned into a monster and not to think of somebody who might be a Westerner who's somehow stirring the pot of the local violence and just to be calm and ordinary with us in this extraordinary situation. I think we did see them as human beings and recognize that their humanity was real. What they were doing was wrong. Sometimes they'd admit that, which was, was reassuring. And they were caught up in this and possibly not by choice because they were within a group and they had to do their thing. That was kind of helpful to recognize that by and large rather than you know, write them off as just being the enemy monster. You know. Two decades after you were freed, in a little windowless radio studio in New York, you got to meet, didn't you, a very charismatic man from the UN behind your release. What was that like? That was extraordinary. This was Gian Domenico Pico, Italian guy who was a diplomat, worked for the UN, as you say, and he was under Secretary General of the United Nations. So he was working for the then Secretary General, Perez de Cuella, a remarkable man. He got involved with the hostage crisis. So he'd, he'd brokered the ceasefire between Iran and Iraq and their long, you remember their endless war across the wars with all the gas attacks and sending little boys off to heaven to fight the war on from either side. He managed to broker that deal. And I think once he'd done that, his boss, Perez Decoeur, the Secretary General said, well, what do you want to do next, Johnny? And Johnny said, I'd like to see if I can help with, you know, I've got this involvement now with Tehran in particular, with the end of the Iran-Iraq war, etc. I'd like to see if I can do anything with the hostage crisis, which was by then quite you know, this was, this was in 1988, I think, the, the ceasefire. Uh, can I do that? Yeah, off he went to do that and worked and worked and worked on that and got completely involved, which was a remarkable way. And to meet him, in, as you say, in a windowless, I hadn't realised it, you know, what, what had gone on. I'd sort of missed his involvement or that he, I think maybe he was still working very much in the background when I came out in 91 and then we learnt more about it. So meeting him and being able to say thank you because what I'd discovered and then he actually, you know, told me the story for real, which was serious, you know, goosebump and sort of amazement really and respect and being humbled by meeting this character. The day that we've been talking about when I was released, went to Damascus, flew home to Lynham and, and you were there with press corps colleagues and all that shenanigans were going on. So I don't know whether it was exactly the same day that I was released and, and came home in sort of fanfare of glory to, to the UK and to Lynham. But Johnny went out onto the streets of West Beirut, uh, which was predominantly the Muslim area, and literally walked off into the darkness to allow himself to be kidnapped effectively, to meet the leaders of Islamic Jihad, the group that had just been holding me and was still holding Terry Waite, and the Americans and quite a few other Westerners. And he got to that point by having negotiated and been doing shuttle diplomacy, if you like, between Tehran with the people main backers, if you like, of Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah. Uh, he'd been talking with the British governments, of course, the French government who had been involved, the Germans who got hostages there, the Americans who'd got hostages there, the Israelis who were very much involved, obviously the neighbors to the southern edge of Lebanon, and they were holding lots of Lebanese prisoners, the Hezbollah people had got 
maybe Israeli military personnel dead or alive. So he'd been going around trying to work out what everybody would agree to. And each time he went to the next place, the other people who just agreed to something then changed their minds. So he said it was a nightmare. Anyway, he now got to the point where I'd been released, and one American, I think, who I didn't know, I'd been released as like the first stage in what he was hoping was going to be a kind of gradual but steady and fairly rapid unraveling or release of the rest of the hostages, etc. But inevitably, it was going to be tricky in that. And they said, well, we want to see you. We want to meet you to check up on whether we can really trust you. And so he had to put himself out in the streets in the dark and got kidnapped, blindfolded, put in the boot of a car and taken off. And you just thought, God, when he told me that, you were risking everything to keep this thing going. And I just come out of that and thought nobody in their right minds could possibly put themselves into that circumstance. Although, of course, Terry had. They'd taken him when he was there to try and negotiate. So Pico got to meet these guys and he said it was extraordinary and it's fascinating. He said, I was taken to a room and I think they were wearing kind of balaclama masks that they were hidden. So he wasn't blindfolded, which is, you know, unusual and, and interesting in those circumstances. They looked at him and they were talking and, and one of them, Possibly Imad Bunknia, who was the military leader of, of Hezbollah, subsequently a few years ago assassinated, I think, uh, by the Israelis, but one of the leaders of certainly of Islamic Jihad. And he apparently said, so, Mr. Pico, are you impartial? Which, of course, you know, the UN is meant to be, you know, absolutely impartial. Yes, we respect everybody's points of view. And, and Pico said he was just thinking, right, what do I do here? That trick question, yeah. And he said, I thought, I've just got to be honest with these people, I just don't know where to go. If I start, you know, he said, No, I'm not impartial. And apparently, this guy looked at me and was thinking, You know, that boof, a pistol comes out and they shoot me. He said, No, I'm very glad you said that, Mr. Pico, because if you said you were impartial, we knew we can't deal with you because it would be ridiculous to be impartial. We know, we know what we're doing is wrong. So if you pretend, (laughs) if you were to say you didn't think it was, and he said, That was a really interesting thing because he then realized that whilst what they were doing was terrible, they were doing it for a cause that they felt justified this extraordinary use of of innocent human beings as hostage pawns. How extraordinary that you met him. And also, the other character that you met also in New York was Harvey Schlossberg, the Director of Psychological Services for the New York Police Department. And he shared his theory with you, didn't he, about creating a relationship with hostage takers, which I imagine Gianni was trying to do in that very scary situation. He was very interesting on it, as indeed with Schlossberg and, and other people I met. How do you work forward? He was saying, you, you see yourself as someone who can reach out and share the humanity, but with not accepting what they're doing, just saying this is the reality, and is there a way that we can look to solve it? I mean, I have to say at this point that that is not something that we do at Hostage International. We don't get involved with negotiations or for ransom or for some political deal between a state and a state, because we're just there to support the families and the direct prisoner themselves. It was really interesting how that works, but it is about building that relationship. And I think that's about how you survive if you're approaching someone who is apparently a hostage taker or whatever. But likewise, when you're banged up inside that situation that we did it, you'd build, try and build a relationship with somebody you know, they couldn't see us, we couldn't see them because our faces were largely covered. If I can communicate with, with like yourselves, with, with Helen, even though we can't see each other, it's less likely that she'll do something violent to me, or, or in this case, these guys or something, it, because they'll be, oh, no, wait a minute, I, this is a, I know this person, this is, this is a human being, it's not just a faceless, you know, creature. How are you now, John, 30-odd years ago, 
Do you think back to it very often? I know you have a lovely daughter and presuming you've had conversations with your daughter about why you made the news all those years ago, but how are you? I'm in a terrible state, Helen. Are you? Be <laughs> <laughs> this is a whole oh, no, new I, podcast. I, I, it's funny because it is so long ago. Over many years, apart from writing that first book with Jill Morell about her campaign, My Captive Experience, I made a lot of programmes, radio or TV, that would be related to that hostage experience in some way or another. I still give talks about those years as a hostage. It's never exactly gone away at all, but most of the time I think it hasn't impinged, interestingly. I've never had any really violent flashbacks as far as I can tell. Sometimes I do get hostage kind of dreams, but normally nothing that's really too alarming or frightening and probably related to ordinary day-to-day stresses, you know, the mortgage or whatever. So that's good. And yeah, I've talked to my teenager, nearly 18 now, about that experience. And I think it's interesting because I can't believe this is my daddy this happened to. This is weird because you're just here and this is normal. So in a way, that's quite good because you think, yeah, it was something that happened. It was an extraordinary experience, but it was a very long time ago. And I've done all these other things since then. And actually, the most important thing was, was having you as a child. Yeah, and that's, so that's lovely. So it moves on. But then funnily enough, you know, it makes strange introductions. You know, just sort of self- I, um, no, it just I was just doing some talks on a cruise ship recently. And my 18-year-old came with me. It started in Cape Town and we went to Robin Island, where Mandela and many of the ANC prisoners were held during the apartheid regime. And we went around the island and were shown around the prison where most of the political prisoners were held. And were shown around by one of the former ANC prisoners themselves. So it's like it's first-hand experience. And it was obviously a devastating and terrible place to be held uh, as a political prisoner. Very harsh regime, et cetera, et cetera, trying to basically destroy the political will of the black African people, you know, keep them oppressed by the apartheid regime. Anyway, so we were going around and at one point somebody asked this guide, a, a former prisoner, you know, when were you released? And he said, I was the last batch released in spring of 1991. And then somebody else said, oh, and how long were you a prisoner? And he said, well, I was sentenced to 30 years. I don't know what it was for, but, you know, whatever activity was deemed at 30 years, but served, ended up, it was five and a half years because I then came home and suddenly realized, God, that's just exactly bizarrely when I was banged up in Lebanon, came out in 91, somewhere in 91, been held for five weeks. Anyway, so we swapped sort of notes and email addresses. So I hope to you know, maybe do a podcast with him or something. Already. But it was fascinating because we'd switched that. You know, it's interesting, the question you asked about humanizing people and the relationship with the guards because when I asked him I mean, we had a brief time, on, obviously on a tour with lots of other tourists. He had his job to do, but we spent a few moments together and he said, yeah, you know, there were one or two guards that one could deal with and were more sympathetic and you felt safe with them. That was really good to know that. There was looking after each other for education. I said one of the most important things for, for me and the, my fellow hostages in, in Beirut was the fact that we managed to keep laughing, had a sense of humour. And he burst, this guy burst out, I said, nobody's ever asked me that before. And he thinking, of course, going around Robin Island and we're standing, we were actually standing outside the cell that Nelson Mandela was held in. You wouldn't really think any good jokes, you know, I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not the sort of thing that most people, and he said, nobody's ever asked me that before. He said, but yes, it was really important as I, well I, as political beliefs and keeping each other's spirits going. We laughed a lot. 
You've always had a very cheeky sense of humour, I, I think. I remember I interviewed you 10 years ago. You kept popping back in my life, John, on the GMTV sofa, which is now Good Morning Britain. And oh. I remember in that very trying to get your whole story in four minutes, which is quite a challenge. But humour even came out in that four minutes. But talking of comedy, of course, Nick Toxvic's sister is Sandy Toxvic, the comedian. And I remember you embarked on a bit of an adventure a few years after your release, sailing around Britain with Sandy, which I seem to remember she was just constantly popping seasick pills but I think that that also just showed how you tried to see life and how humor is so important to you was that a great trip to do in those early years of sort of still trying to presumably yeah. re-enter normal life oh it was it was an amazing thing it was it was like on one level it was I mean, not as a television program but to go sailing let alone sailing around Britain was a, a captive fantasy I think I'd always sort of in the back of my mind thought it'd be nice to learn or be on the water or become a sailor but then to actually do that and it was we, we sailed in this beautiful old boat together I don't think the producers when they started thinking out the program knew that Sandy and I were old mates I was famous for being you know banged up on the idea of me exploring the coastline of Britain after that was you know good can plan. see that you know, in a planning meeting <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and Sandy who was the national treasure or Trevor as she might call herself and comedian as well as an experienced TV presenter and then suddenly it was oh hello darling you, we're doing this together are we and they're oh you well, and that was brilliant for me particularly because I had no idea what I was doing initially you know and literally learning the ropes together on the ship but also learning how to be a TV presenter was great but it was one of those extraordinary things that in terms of rehabilitation you know I'm thinking of you know clients and people who come for support from Hostel International to be able to get a chance to do something like that to fulfill a lifetime but certainly a, a hostage time captive dream of being out in the wide open spaces was remarkably therapeutic and bloody lucky who gets a job like that and it was a paid job you know to do that with an old friend and experience something so new and, and a great experience it was great fun and I ended up subsequently getting a sailing boat of my own and all that Sandy who was he's so smart and, and apart from being obviously very funny and worked out the technicals of sailing particularly in navigation I mean, she probably still remembers more of it than I ever did, even though I got my own boat subsequently. But I don't think she ever wanted to go back on the water. <laughs> that was a fabulous thing. And as I say, it just highlights the really strange, in a way, experience that people like, well, the few of us, particularly from, from the Lebanon hostage crisis, like Terry and I had, in terms of support and opportunity to do things and to do things, again, at our own pace without it. But some really, really brilliant, lighthearted, enormously fun things that, that like, like sailing around Britain with an old friend. And you've travelled. I mean, you've done a lot of travel in your work, India, Iran, Brazil, Russia, the Middle East. You've been making lots of different programmes. What are you up to at the minute and what else is out there now that, that's on the horizon that you'd like to do work-wise, do you think? Not so much. I haven't really done much radio work, which I, I, I came to really love. I enjoyed the TV. It was great. And then that just went away a bit, I think, probably, I think didn't come up with any brilliant ideas. Or maybe I just wasn't any good at it. I don't know. But the radio <laughs> work I d did enjoy very much. I like the intimacy, basically, of like us sitting here now, having a conversation with, whether it's here or anywhere around the world. Uh, and that, A, the journalistic privilege of being taken into somebody's workplace or somebody's home environment, and that's being shared on, a, on an intimate level, but without the cameras, somehow makes it better with just a microphone or two. It's always been lovely, and I, I really enjoyed that. So I, I sort of missed that because I haven't done much of that over the last couple of years. But if I can, maybe go and return to Cape Town and meet the ANC guy who I met there who's locked up at the same time as I was, that would be a great program I'd like to do, and things like that. And continue doing the speaking, but more taking time now, not 
feeling the need. So I can read some books, be in touch with Terry Wade and think about Hosted International and watch quite a lot of cricket on the telly as well. Watch like quite a lot of cricket. That's good. And if you do go and do that documentary, I hope you'll take me with you and we'll do a podcast with the, the man you met in plan. Robin Island. That would be good. Just one final thought, John. We're asking everybody in our autumn season of the Convex conversation, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? I feel quite odd asking you that when you went through what you went through, but perhaps since your release, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken in life? Going sailing with Sally. No, um, <laughs> I think I'm, whether, I think it probably always was, but maybe, maybe, you know, that Beirut experience sort of reinforced it. I'm probably quite risk averse. Although, you know, I would like to try skiing or sailing, obviously, or maybe windsurfing or whatever it is. I've never, for instance, wanted to go back and think I'm going to be a war correspondent or war journalist or producer or whatever. But having said that, I think it was more perhaps of an emotional than a physical risk. Whereas when I, the first time I did go back to Lebanon, and that was to make a program. It was about actually about Shia Islam, the people holding us, the Hezbollah people were Shia Muslims. And I wanted to do a program about that. And by then, thankfully, Lebanon was very peaceful. And so one could go back and the, the Shia were the, the largest of the various sects within the country. And I do remember getting on the plane at Heathrow and it was just for a TV program. And, uh, you know, the cameraman's doing the bit about, so John, you know, you're off. How do you feel about going back there? And it was the first time back. And I won't repeat what I actually said just as a joke, you know, but it basically was along the lines of what on earth am I doing this for? Uh, having, you know, last time it went horribly wrong. But in fact, and again, it was, it was a lucky thing to do with a huge amount of support, TV companies and all that stuff, and lots of contact on the ground with some brilliant local producers, et cetera, in Lebanon. It was a remarkably wonderful sense of release to go back there and be anxious. Obviously, I was anxious, but I was treated bizarrely as a bit of a celebrity because I was like another Civil War celebrity. I was just English back again visiting. And I met some of the Hezbollah people and they'd moved on. It was all fine. It was a, a very wonderful thing to go back there and think, well, happily, Lebanon's moved on. They were rebuilding after the war. I could go anywhere I wanted in that country, more or less. Obviously, got sort of diplomatic passes for certain areas, in a sense, uh, through our journalistic work. But to be able to think, this is all right, I can come back here and I'm not under threat. Nobody's in interested in me beyond, oh, you were caught up in our conflict too. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, Lebanon is open to me again, rather than a closed off space. And that was as much open emotionally and psychologically as physically, obviously. But I think it was quite a risk. And one or two people did say, why would you want to go back there? You know, go around the world. As you said, I've been lucky to travel a lot. And we said, why don't you just carry on doing that? Do you want to do that? I thought, no, it's a good story, but also I do want to see how I feel and cope with it. And so it wasn't a physical risk. I never felt that I would be in danger and didn't feel in danger while I was there. But I just wondered how I'd cope with it. And luckily, it went very well. I think Hostage International are so lucky to have you. I know they all think they're so lucky to have you as a patron, John. Your lived experiences and your wealth of knowledge around the subject. And I think that reassuring feeling that for all the people that Hostage International are helping There'll be a sense of comfort with your name on the sheet as a patron. They well, won't be alone. Well, thank you. I mean, I hope I can support Terry and the team as much as possible because it's just really important work. There's, it's a specialist, if you like, niche market of a few people growing numbers, I think 70, 400 over the, over the years that the charity's looked after, currently 70 or more, and very 
weird and specialist situations. And the fact that the likes of myself and Terry, who do understand that, and we've got lots of obviously serious professionals who can help us support those people and their families who are going through it now. It's a great thing to be involved with. It's a pleasure to see you again. And who knows when I'll bump into you next and what you'll do. <laughs> every 10 years, we must have every a reunion. Every 10 years, we'll have a little, Hope it's little sooner than that. reunion. You've been listening to journalist and writer John McCarthy talking about his role as Hostage International's first patron and how life has been since he was released from Lebanon three decades ago. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to yours. Join me next week when I'll be catching up with Teresa Patricios from Convex and Cam Parker from Swiss Re to hear about their record-breaking row across the Pacific, raising funds for MIND. I'll see you then.